0: Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI.
2: Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. You may have seen her on TV, on Dateline, investigative reports, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, Araldo, just about everybody, I guess. She presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Murray.
1: Good evening. So, what kind of show we got tonight? We got a great show tonight. You know, I think so highly of the LA County's District Attorney's Office. Do you remember a few years ago I had the pleasure and the privilege of serving on the task force and identity theft with the LA County's um, District Attorney's Office? That's right. Yeah, and, and did you know that it is the largest local prosecutorial agency in the nation? Didn't know that. Didn't know that. Well, we have a very, very, very special guest tonight. We have a deputy DA from there, and he is fabulous in fact he even teaches identity theft at ucla at the extension and he te- what, do you,
2: what do you mean teaches ideas? well he
1: teaches no he doesn't teach how to do it no 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 no. he teaches people how to protect themselves and how not to be uh you know involved with the identity theft or at least to, to get out of it he'll tell us a little bit about it but let me introduce you to our very special vip tonight jonathan Ferretlow. He's been a deputy DA with the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office since 1994. And he's been assigned to the high-tech crime unit and its predecessor unit called HALT since May of 2000. He's prosecuted over 50 identity theft defendants. And he, listen to this. Remember when we had Choice Point on? We even had um, the uh, privacy officer, Carol DeBaptiste, from right. Choice Point well, he was the one who was the lead prosecutor on the People v. Oluwatosin, the Choice Point Data Intrusion case. And he was selected as Prosecutor of the Year in 2006 by the Southern uh, Chapter of the International Association of Financial Crime Investigators. And he's a police officer standards training. You know, he does post-training, like I do, and he's an instructor on identity theft. And he's helped train on the high tech uh, issues for the California District Attorneys Association, the LA Police Department, the FBI, and the Southern California High Tech Task Force. He's a graduate of Loyola Marymount and Loyola Law School, and he is terrific. And I'm so thrilled. Uh, Jonathan, good Nick. Ne- good- thank you so much for being here. That's terrific of you to take your special time all the way from L.A. Luckily, you're another Californian, so that's easier. So tell us, what is the high-tech crime unit, and and what does it do?
0: Well, the high-tech crime unit is a part of the L.A. County DA's office. We're actually assigned within the Consumer Protection Division. But our particular focus on the high-tech crime unit is three broad types of crime. First, we handle, obviously, computer crime, hacking, uh, theft of intellectual property, things like that. We also deal with all the different ways that people can steal uh, things that have intellectual value, everything from movie piracy to uh, auction fraud. But perhaps the biggest portion of what we do in our unit is we focus on large-scale, multiple-defendant, multiple-victim identity theft cases. And uh, I think that's become more and more one of the strongest parts of our particular unit. There's four DAs assigned in the unit. And we all work on different parts of cases, but we all handle ID thefts, we all handle computer crimes, and we all handle thefts of intellectual property.
1: So, Jonathan, tell me, so, I, I'm so impressed when I meet these task forces because I don't think people realize all of the the cross-agencies that take part. Could you tell about who is involved or what makes up the task force?
0: Certainly. Uh, one of the things that we work with is there are really two different types of task forces. There are task forces that are organized or run at the state level, and then there are task forces that are organized or run at the federal level. And in the greater LA area, we're really lucky to be part of two excellent task forces. The first is the Southern California High Tech Crimes Task Force. Now, that task force coverage covers Orange, Los Angeles, and Ventura counties, and is a combination of the police the police departments, the DA's offices, and groups all over the state. Now, in our particular task force The Southern California Task Force is headed up by the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. And the task force itself has two parts. Part one handles high technology crimes and deals with the hacking and other crimes that we just talked about. But the other part is an identity theft task force. And this is something that I think we're all very, very proud of because L.A. had an ID theft task force way before anyone else because, as you are well aware of, L.A. had an ID theft problem well before anyone else did. And we have been working with the L.A. Sheriff, the Secret Service uh, Police departments such as the Pasadena Police Department, Culver City Police Department, Glendale Police Department, to all pool our resources to be able to deal with ID theft.
1: Jonathan, don't you also work with the inspector, uh, the postal inspector, and the Social Security Administration, and, and sometimes even the IRS?
0: Absolutely. All of those are part of both our state task force, And then there are also federal task forces as well. There's the L.A. Electronic Crimes Task Force that is headed up by the Secret Service that also has the FBI as a co-partner, and many of the other federal agencies are involved. There's even a third task force. There's a postal inspection ID theft task force headed up by the U.S. Postal Inspection Service that also does great work in the L.A. area as well.
1: I think the greatest thing about that is that you can share information with each other, and often these crimes involved the Social Security Administration, and they always seem to involve the, the uh, postal inspector, right? Because most of the identity theft has to include the mails, right?
0: Well, yes, and, uh, and things are kind of shifting a little bit, we started to, to notice. While mail is always an old standby, stealing someone's mail gives great insight into identity information. Probably the biggest trend that we have seen is the growth towards uh, the theft of identity information via electronic means, and that is where that's where the tie-in with the high-tech groups has become even more important. But I, I really can't stress enough the value of the task force approach, because it's it's more than just sharing resources and being able to share leads. It also helps to create a sense of a law enforcement community working against the people who are trying to victimize our community. It, Uh, there's a tendency for police departments and agencies to think within their jurisdiction. So if you're the Glendale Police Department, you think about Glendale. If you're the Los Angeles Police Department, you're concerned with the city of Los Angeles. But uh, identity theft really doesn't respect borders. An an ID thief might start in Glendale and work his way through the city of L.A., the city of Ventura, all the way up to to Santa Barbara. We have to work together to be able to track down the, the crime information and turn it into a successful prosecution.
1: Right. And the fact that these identity thieves can even go cross state lines. Absolutely. <laughs> and and that happens a lot, you know. I've I've had victims who've been victimized in so many different states that, you know, it's it's very hard to do it by yourselves and if you're just with the LA County, if and you need somebody in the secret service to help you in other states perhaps, and then you might even involve law enforcement agencies in other states too, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, In fact, we are very, very lucky that uh, there's a great relationship between local agencies and both the United States Secret Service and the FBI here in uh, California. Because what we've all realized is that if we don't work together and share our resources and work to, to try and catch these thieves, what's going to happen is the thieves are going to do significant damage to not only people's lives and people's livelihoods, but also to people's confidence in the economic system that has made all of us very prosperous.
1: Exactly. So how many new cases do you all get every every month?
0: Mm. Well, that's a uh, kind of a, a varied number. Right. Recently, we've uh, kind of done a survey of some of the ID thefts around Los Angeles County and just how many were reported over the 2005 year. And we actually went to each of the local police departments and asked them for some of their numbers. We had a little over i believe 27,000 reported cases of identity theft just in LA County alone.
1: Now, that since when? Is that in- That is
0: the calendar year of 2005. Oh, wow. Now, uh, these aren't speculative numbers. These are actual police reports taken by uh one of the I believe there's almost 43 separate police agencies in LA County. So, this is both the Sheriff's Department, LAPD, uh Long Beach Police Department, many agencies who we are all working on this problem.
1: One of the good things is, you know, I remember a few years back, victims would call me from the L.A. area and say, I cannot get law enforcement to take a police report. But I think that's changed. I think you you all have really done a great job that at least people can get a police report, because if they don't have a police report, as you know, they cannot clean up the mess of their lives.
0: You've, and, you've absolutely hit something that's vitally important. but. I'm going to toss out a a statistic that I think worries me. Uh, According to the FTC, a little under 40% of people actually make the report. So if you think about it, if you think that that 27,000 people in in L.A. who made a report, that means that we have at least another 27,000 out there who were victimized, who didn't bother to go down to the police.
1: Right. And, And some of them still don't know that that's what they should be doing. And, and even though I think it's, it's better, I think that now creditors and the credit reporting agencies are telling them, but then we also have someone who maybe it's a family member or it's a friend or something like that, and they're, they're talked out of going to the police.
0: Well, yeah. the, the other reality, too, is that we also have to look at some of the different types of ID theft that go on. Uh, one of the things that the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, who really has taken a, a strong leadership role in, in identity theft, and I have to say just wonderful things about people like, uh, Lieutenant Williams and uh, Sergeant Bob Berardi and the work that they've done on ID theft is they actually have started to track different types of ID thefts within their statistics.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Well, it turns out that about 67% of the ID thefts reported in LA County deal with credit cards cr- or credit fraud. Right. But the next largest segment is one that we probably wouldn't think about utilities, things oh. like gas, electric, and things that. When some, that people aren't going to trigger a notice on their credit report because if someone opens up a gas account in, in your name in Los Angeles County, that's not going to show up until that account becomes delinquent
1: Exactly. and it shows
0: up on your credit report when you're applying for that new car, trying to get a new house, or the different aspects.
1: Right, and, and there's other types of fraud that, that do, doesn't show up as well. Like, for example, if somebody gets a driver's license in your name that's yep. not going to show up, or if they get a fake driver's license and then use that, or if they get workers' compensation or disability payments, or let's say they get a life insurance policy in my name making themselves the beneficiary. We've, we've heard all these kinds of things, but people keep thinking, well, if I look at my credit report, I'm safe, and that really isn't the case at all.
0: Exactly. In, in fact, what I would uh, love your listeners to kind of take away from this show is to remember that identity theft is really an enabling crime. It's done to commit another type of crime, and it isn't just credit card fraud. Right, it's right. It's using your information to hide a crime. It's using your information to make a crime easier for the criminal, or it's using your information to get something. Yeah, financial so gain, right.
1: Yeah. Now, one of the worst things that, that I find, and I've actually had to help people um, who were victims of criminal identity theft. Yes. And uh, that one, luckily, in the state of California, we've developed a a format so people can go into court and and clear their name and get a certificate of innocence. Um, I want to tell you that the DA's office in in L.A. has been pretty good about helping some victims to do this without having to hire an attorney.
0: Well, it's very important to us. Uh, There is nothing worse to ADA than to have someone get a criminal conviction for something that they didn't do For something that they weren't involved in. Because we both rely on those records as part of our day-to-day activities, and we also really focus and try and make sure that the punishment is given to the right people. Someone getting a criminal record by another person's actions in in their name affects all of us, and it's very important to us that that not happen.
1: Well, Jonathan, tell me, so if someone is a victim of criminal identity theft, can they go directly to the DA and ask the DA to help them to prepare the the motion to the court and to clear their name? Can they get that kind of help from your office?
0: Well, there's two things to approach with that. First, uh, what I would always recommend when someone runs into this particular problem is that they stop for a quick second and gather up their records. Because part of the problem that we have is in order for us to be able to help there has to be some means or method by which we can help evaluate who or what we're dealing with. So, for, for example, if you've found that you've got a traffic ticket that's been uh, charged in your name, well, it might be that there was a print taken at the, uh, the, the time of the ticket. It might be that if you've got airline tickets that show that you were out of town at that, any information that you have that helps us evaluate that is going to be necessary. But you don't even actually have to come directly to us. You can go to the court and seek help. There's no requirement that there be a case or other particular actions because, again, this is something of paramount importance to almost everyone involved. But where I would start would be I would go to the Office of Privacy Protection and go through their guides. Because what you want to be in in these situations is prepared to be able to answer questions so that you can help the court, you can help the prosecutor, you can help all those who want to help clear this up for you work through the problem.
1: Right. And and Jonathan, is t- you're talking about the Office of Privacy Protection. I'm going to give that website. It's privacy.ca.gov. And when you get there, you look under identity theft and then click on criminal identity theft. And there are forms that... Um, c- are compliant with the statute on how to clean up the mess you have to go to your law enforcement agency and you may have to get fingerprints but it shows you how to fill it out but once you have that done and you get everything that jonathan is talking about then can they go to you jonathan instead of having to hire a criminal defense lawyer can they then come and call the uh, la county office uh, da's office to get some help
0: Uh, What I would recommend is uh, when that situation arises and everything's been completed, there's, uh, I think, a group that can always help within our office, which is we have a Department of uh, Victim and Witness Services. Talking with them can help guide you to the right resources, to the right place. Right, Uh, You can can always go into the front desk of any DA's office and ask for help, but again... The key is 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 preparation and making sure that you've got everything put together.
1: Right, and you know, at uh, first I want to just reintroduce you. We're speaking with Jonas, Jonathan Jonathan who is a Deputy D- DA in Los Angeles County on the high tech crime unit. Um, he's terrific. He knows what he's doing, and he's advising us about what goes on with the high tech crime unit and how to protect, uh, how to deal with identity theft and other issues that you might experience in high tech crime. So let me ask you. Um, is there a typical ID theft offender?
0: Absolutely not. And that is the thing that makes this crime so troubling. I have personally prosecuted people who were in their late 50s who were committing ID theft, and I have prosecuted people who were very, very young. I prosecuted women and men, There's, and I prosecuted people of different socioeconomic statuses who commit ID theft. It's not something that is limited in any particular way although we have seen some strong tie-ins between uh, people who are hooked on drugs.
1: Right, who, methamphetamine, yeah. Uh,
0: and who uh, use identity theft to help support a habit. But it's uh, someone can commit ID theft for reasons as, as varied as they're concerned about their f- financial future or they're just looking for a way to earn extra money or even where they are looking at identity theft as a form of an enterprise for them, a business. Right. There's really no unique or easily identifiable offender.
1: You know, Jonathan. Many years ago, it's gee, it's ten years ago now. When I became a victim of identity theft, I worked with the DA up in Ventura, and um, it was interesting because my offender, my victim, my uh, imposter rather, uh, was a methamphetamine addict. And she was in her 30s, she was a single mom, and she was committing identity theft. And one of the things in those years that they told me is, you know, a lot of the violent crime is often committed, unfortunately, by men, all right? And this is not a sexist thing. But it, with identity theft, you get a lot of women doing this. Is is that what you notice as well? And that, that was pretty common. They, were not, they weren't surprised at all. She was a meth addict, and she was, uh, you know, able to do this and she was parading not only as an attorney but as a um a private detective and her ex-husband was a cop and her dad was a a former cop
0: (laughs) well again i i'm always very leery of making uh generalizations right just because uh i i deal with the my own little subset of cases the sort of cases i tend to deal with tend to be the large-scale multiple victim cases these are Highly dedicated IDC. But what I would point out is that one of the advantages, if you could call it, for identity theft for a criminal is that you really don't have to accept the same level of consequences as you do with a face-to-face violent crime. Exactly. So you can believe, you can talk yourself into it. I'm not really hurting anybody. I'm really just stealing from the banks. And they've got a lot of money. No one's really going to know. This person will be able to clear it up, no problem, no bother. I really need it. And because they don't have to steal something from someone, they don't have to take someone from someone, they don't have to hurt someone, they can just commit ID theft standing in the line at Ralph's.
1: Right, they don't have to use a gun.
0: They become, it, it enables them to commit the, the crime, whereas uh, many uh, identity thieves would find it very difficult, say, to actually engage in a 211 robbery or to do something physically violent.
1: Right, they all they have to really do is use credit cards, use checks, uh, do some pretext calling. <laughs> you know, it's it's really like you said, a faceless crime, and it's pretty easy.
0: Also, and, yeah? some of our more advanced thieves prey on other people to help them in the identity theft. It'll be a, uh, if I am a identity thief that has access to a good source of information, and I can manufacture credit cards or checks. Well part of the risk is getting caught using those. so i will find people who are maybe a little desperate the single mom whose whose rent is due and she doesn't know how she's going to pay it a, metham, a, a methamphetamine addict who doesn't know where they're going to get the money for their next fix and right. i will convince them to go into the bank and use the card to open up a bank account to enable me to, to deposit the uh, fake check people will get used by their need by more experienced criminals and. Again, I see a lot of people get picked up that way. And one thing that I don't think people really understand is that if you are involved in a large-scale crime, even if you just have a small portion of it, under the general law of conspiracy, if you're part of the overall group, if you've joined in the conspiracy, you're responsible for all of the conspiracy. So people can get themselves in far worse than they ever thought they were planning to be when they joined into some of these plans.
1: Let me ask you, Jonathan, about how many of the cases that are reported to the police are actually prosecuted in your area?
0: Well, that, uh, just to kind of give you an idea, last year, and again, these, these are rough numbers. I don't have anything specific in front of me. Right. But uh, I believe in 2005 we prosecuted around 1,200 identity theft cases. Now, when you look at the number of 27,000 reported to police agencies, That can kind of give you some ideas. But part of the issue, too, is this. Of the 27,000 that might be reported, under California law, if I live in Los Angeles County, I am entitled to make a report at my local jurisdiction. So if if I live in, we'll say, Marina del Rey, then I can go to the Marina del Rey Sheriff's Department and make a report there. However, the crime might have occurred in Buffalo. It might have occurred in Toronto. My card might have been used in Osaka. Right. So where the report is taken is not very indicative of where the crime necessarily occurred. Right. So it's very difficult to use clearance numbers in the same way that you would use for, we'll say, burglaries.
1: Right, right. Where there's
0: a local tie-in to the particular crime.
1: Right, right. Now, it, isn't it true that the, the case, uh, help me with this, sure. the case can be prosecuted where it occurred, um, or where the victim lives, isn't that correct?
0: Not technically. And, Not uh, any, I thought the, that
1: was the happening. I thought we were trying to get that done.
0: Now, again, currently under current law, now th- there are some things to to try and change that. Right. But currently, identity theft has two bases for jurisdiction: one, where the information is stolen. Right. So, two, where the information is used. So, if uh, your information is stolen from your dentist's office in La Crescenta,
1: right. then
0: L.A. County would have jurisdiction even if the information was used in Las Vegas. In the same way, if your information was, was stolen during a, a trip to a casino in Las Vegas but is used in Carson, then again L.A. County would have jurisdiction because the crime, the use of it occurred here. Now there is a kind of a small sub-effect. If the effect of the crime is felt within a jurisdiction, that can be another basis for prosecution. Also, just because, again, identity thieves don't respect borders, they might start with your information at a shopping mall in Lakewood and then head down to Orange County to go to uh, South Coast Plaza. The, where two counties share an ID theft victim and share ID theft crimes, one county can choose to centralize the crimes there if the prosecutors of the other county agree to the centralization. So it allows us to kind of bring everything together.
1: Right, right. So it's kind of convoluted or it gets kind of negotiated, shall we say, depending on the circumstances.
0: That and the uh, the, the thing that I'd ask most people to kind of keep in the back of their mind is that it's also really focused on who's got the best opportunity to be able to catch and prosecute someone. Right. And obviously the focus there is to track the defendant, the person who did this. So if the person who is using the information is in one jurisdiction, but the victims are in another, it is uh, easier to catch the person in the, the, the jurisdiction where they're working, where all the evidence will be, than it is to work a case from the jurisdiction where all the victims
1: are. I see. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That makes sense. And, we, and you have to think about the resources, because it costs a lot of money to do this, too. So you want to do it where it's easiest, I would imagine. I mean, there's so many decisions that you have to make that a lot of us who are just ordinary consumers really don't recognize.
0: That's, uh, that's quite true, and it's, I, I'm, I'm, it's nice to to hear that being recognized. But w- what I would point out is, is this. Uh, we in uh, Los Angeles County especially are very, very lucky in that the police agencies that have a devoted resources to the investigation of identity theft, like the uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and the Los Angeles Police Department, and Long Beach Police Department, and even Glendale too, have put very experienced officers on these cases who really work hard to get these cases. Because unlike most crimes, like uh, for example, if there's a, a, a burglary, the officers can come over to the house, they can dust for for prints, they've got a, a contained area to look for evidence. Right. On identity theft. In many cases, when the victim calls the police at that first time that they make that call, they know that they've been victimized, but they do not know where, how, or by whom.
1: Or to what extent.
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) They may not know exactly. Maybe they know about two credit cards or they know about a mortgage or something, but they don't know what the extent of it. It could be far more reaching than they even could believe.
0: And, in fact, uh, many of our largest cases, have been broken by what turns out to be, or seems to be at the start, a very small act. We do not look at something and say, "Oh well, really, that's only a small loss." We're not going to investigate or look at that because we simply don't know. And and I think that's one thing too that I'd uh, love for your listeners to take away with as well is that under California law, the victim has been given an awful lot of ability to really help themselves and to help law enforcement in gathering information. There's two pieces of legislation in particular that I'd like everyone to kind of keep in the back of their mind. The first is uh, our California Penal Code Section 530.8. Now, this section allows a victim of identity theft who has obtained a police report to request in writing and get, within a reasonable time, 10 business days, any records that were opened up or obtained by the identity thief for bank, credit information, cell phone information, and many different types of info. So a victim who realizes that they have become a victim, if they go down and get that police report, they then get the ability to kind of do a little bit of detective work themselves and gather in some of the information that they can then help present to law enforcement in order to help have their case evaluated.
1: The great thing about being able to do this, and under federal law, under the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, um, that enables anybody throughout the country. So, you know, even if you're a victim, let's say you're a California victim, and there have been, um, you know, identity theft committed in other states with other corporations, You use the the federal law, and you can ask for that. You have to show um, an identity theft report or a police report like what you're talking about, and you can ask that the companies provide documentation of the fraudulent account not only to you as the victim, but also to the law enforcement agency that you designate, and they do it for free. Absolutely. And that's great. So how much of a help is that to you when you're prosecuting cases?
0: Well. The uh, the sort of cases that uh, I tend to get normally tend to involve usually more than 20 victims or uh, more than about $100,000 worth of loss. So a lot of that, that work has not only been done by the victim but also been done by some of the excellent investigators that I get to work with. So I tend to get very, very large packages of information that would fill file cabinets.
1: Wow. So let's talk about some of these cases, especially the choice point, because I think people have heard a lot about that. First, uh, although we've talked about it before on this show, maybe they didn't hear us. So could you tell what happened with that choice point and, and how the fraud really occurred and then how the L.A. County uh, police found out about it and how they told, you know, just tell the whole story?
0: Certainly. Well, I'll, I, I can give a slightly abbreviated version of okay. that because there are still uh, ongoing actions going on in that case. So there okay. are some details I can't go into.
1: All right. All right. But, we'll take what we can get.
0: Uh, <laughs> At its most basic, I think the first thing to realize is what ChoicePoint is. It's a data aggregator. It takes information from public sources all over the United States and brings them together in different database forms. And if you you meet certain criteria, you can join ChoicePoint, open up an account, and pay to search for information. Well, what happened is that uh, ChoicePoint discovered that people were opening accounts And the accounts were opened using identity theft information, or the accounts were were functionally fraudulent. And they were giving people access to be able to search inside the
1: database. Right. And And people who are listening need to know that everybody basically is in there. I mean, you're in there and I'm in there, right? I mean, everybody's in there. I've seen my choice points, so I know that every one of us really if we've ever have any public records about us which we've been born or we've gotten married or we have licenses we are in choice points databases and so is our social security number and they also have access to credit reports so that's that's really important and sensitive information that 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 these fraudulent accounts were able to acquire or access correct
0: yes and I think it's also important to to realize that a lot of this in information is information that has been used or gathered for a, a business purpose. It, it's not as if someone's out there creating a master database of everyone just for fun. It's that right. this has a tremendous business application. It helps lowers... Costs for a lot of us in many different ways, in different ways, for companies to evaluate and use information effectively. Right, so it's, a co- a it's a
1: commercial industry. It's legal, yes. And, <laughs> and
0: and there's a very good purpose to to that that we do get benefits from as a society. Right. But part of the issue was how do you get access to that,
1: and who and, should have access to it?
0: And now, again, as a as a good public servant, that. That, that's an issue that I think we're all going to have to discuss and decide through our, our, our legislators. I know that there's been some fantastic one, work done by Senator Feinstein in order to try and see about getting some regulation of, of data aggregators, and I know there's right. a lot of discussion about that. Right. So I'm not going to go into that particular issue. Sure. I'm going to get back to kind of the more nuts and bolts. Right, right. But this case was broken when someone at ChoicePoint, a good investigator, realized that there, something wasn't quite right and that someone was trying to open up a account and well he thought that that person had tried to open up an account just recently earlier so checking on things he realized the account wasn't valid so he called the L.A. County Sheriff's Department ID theft detail who after giving the information said well why don't you have the this individual he needs to get a fax You're gonna, you have to have a place for him to send something to you and when he gives you that number tell us so the person did and with that number they were able to determine that the location where the item was being faxed to was a, like a Tinko style location. And right. so the police went and waited to see who was coming to pick it up. And from that is how this whole thing unraveled. So, again, a small case, a small act. With good investigation and good follow up, can lead to a much larger issue.
1: So, how many victims were there? And, and, and the gentleman who came to pick up the facts, was that um, Oluwatosun? Is that o, who?
0: Oluwatunji Oluwatosin.
1: Yes. Yes. That was him? That was him. Did you ever get anybody else?
0: Well, again, there are some oh, okay. aspects of this. I just. Okay. can quite go into. Okay. Another as they say confirm or deny.
1: Sure, that's fine. And how, are do I know that there were reported in the news between 7 and 800 victims is that still the number that, that's being reported?
0: Well, the uh, the numbers of victims in, in in Choice Point is really a very difficult term to kind of apply or address. And I'll explain to you why. The access to Choice Point was to get information How that information was used leads to other potential crimes, showing that the information taken from choice point directly related to crime A, B, or C in some cases can be difficult, in some cases was very easy to link up. So what we tended to to focus on was the uh, searches that were done, but even then a search might reveal one person's information. It could reveal 20 or 30. So it's very, very hard, given the nature of the database, to be able to say, it was this many victims, it was this many, uh, it was this many people searched just because of the way in which the database is structured. So I don't like to, to say a, a particular number right. because it could be low, it, it, it could be high. What we focused on is what we could link back to how the overall conspiracy worked. And it, w- it was a, a six-step process. A, a victim's information would be used in order to open up a uh, mailbox. Then with that mailbox opened... Another victim's information would be used to open up a cell phone account. And with a mail dropped and, and cell phone account, there would then be a choice point account opened. Then, once the choice point account was opened, searches would be done on choice point, which would give access to information. That information in different ways would be turned into either credit or cash, which would then be pulled out and used by the conspirators.
1: Hmm. It was a pretty good scheme, huh?
0: It was a it was a very good scheme. And the uh, it, it showed both some of the fundamental weaknesses within the way in which we handle data, as well as it also showed how th- these cases can be addressed or, or broken by good investigation.
1: Right. And, and you know, other than the prosecution, which we'll talk about a little bit more, I just want to remind our listeners that the uh, Federal Trade Commission actually find Choice Point. Um, for these some of the practices that they had, and it was up to it was fifteen million dollars, and they have done some great things since then. Sometimes when a company goes through something like this, they really rise to the occasion, and then they hired Carol DeBatiste, Batiste, who is the uh, privacy officer, who has done really great things for ChoicePoint, and ChoicePoint has really uh, reached out. And since then, you can actually get your ChoicePoint. Public records for free if you go to choicepoint.com or choicetrust.com. You can get that for free along with also your um, free clue report, which is your insurance report. And you can also get your uh, work history report. But I think that the thing that they added that ex- extra for free that other companies aren't giving is that you can get your public records report and see if that's correct or not. So that's, that's one of the things that has the good part that's happened. Now, what lessons have you learned from this, Jonathan? What, what great lessons of this was a, a really very important case, and it made a lot of difference with regard to security breaches.
0: Well, uh, the, I, I think some of the lessons learned from uh, what happened to ChoicePoint is that we all have to be very vigilant about how our information is is used and who has access to our information. And uh, that's probably the number one lesson of, of ChoicePoint. In no way do I, at, do I say that we need to go back to a situation where we just keep paper records. But... Now that we have the capability to gather so much information in one spot, with that amount of information comes a real need for security. And I think it also requires us to think about a trade-off between our security and our convenience. Because we as, uh, as Americans love convenience. We want instant credit when we go to the mall. We want the capability to, be, to not spend a lot of time on paperwork, on forms or data or other information. But that same ease of access, that same ease of use, also (laughs) is being used against us by allowing criminals to get access to that same system and get access to money, property, or data in our name. So we have to work to find a balance between keeping things secure and keeping things convenient. We're not going to be able to have both.
1: Right. You know, Jonathan, I'm thinking that, you know, in 2003, we we, pra- we passed in California the very first security breach law, which basically said that if uh, you are a company that has electronic information that has been acquired by an unauthorized person, then that triggers the duty to notify. And it's my understanding that the L.A. County uh, Police and Law Enforcement Agency and notified a choice point that they needed to notify which they did after the you know with reasonable time for investigation what kind of impact has that had do you think on on your office that that law
0: well the the notification law is both very useful in that it lets people know about a potential problem but it also raises a lot of issues and one of the issues that it's it, it raised is in many cases we notify uh, uh, companies notify of the, the breach, but we don 't know how the information's been used right so uh, a lost laptop gets n- notified the, the same way as an intentional break in to steal data so the question becomes sometimes it can become too much of an alarm if we have so many notices going off at a particular time, maybe we won 't pay attention to them. And part of the issue for law enforcement is to be able to take the notice information and actually turn it into a case, turn it into something where we can actually track down or, or bring someone into justice. I love the notification. law; I think it's a great concept. However, I also think we need to continually look at the purpose behind it and check and see is the constant notices that we get, is it effective in helping keep us secure, or is it going to dull our interest we're going to kind of make us jaded, so it's, oh, just another notice, just another piece of paper, rather than helping us become aware of how to stop the problem.
1: One of the things that, that, that I think would be helpful to law enforcement with regard to the security breach notice, and I, and I basically help work on this law, so I have kind of a, it's kind of close to my heart, um, is that um, we're, we're, we gave a, a carrot and a stick Basically saying that if the electronic information was encrypted, then the duty to notify is not if you know is not in effect so what what we 've seen at least is that a lot of companies have taken greater care to encrypt this information so that if a laptop is stolen there if and it's encrypted there's no duty to notify anybody
0: absolutely in, in fact, I think encryption is one of the uh, longer term solutions to help us manage data.
1: Right. So um, so I'm just thinking at least for law enforcement if if I I guess the question and this is kind of what I'm thinking of in questioning you before 2003 July when that law became effective. Um, you were working in the DA's office in the high tech crime unit yes, was. and and weren't there security breaches at that time that That were being prosecuted, that were not, uh, that consumers were not being notified about.
0: You know, uh, the I'd have to go back and look through cases to be able to answer that in specific detail. But one of the thing, but I think I can perhaps help answer the question this way. Uh, I I know that after the breach notification law came into effect, more cases were reported to law enforcement.
1: Right. Oh, more people. Oh, that's interesting too. Very good. Yeah, because a lot of companies didn't want to have to reveal this. I know when I testified in Congress, I was testifying with LexisNexis and ChoicePoint and Axiom. And um, this was back last year. And they all admitted that, yes, indeed, they did have security breaches and the information was not encrypted and they did not notify. Now, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember if they were asked if they notified police but I do know that they did, notif- they did not notify the affected individuals.
0: Now, I would also need to qualify what I, I just explained, is that that's anecdotal
1: okay. to my <laughs> own
0: knowledge. No, I, I haven't okay. done it, uh, unlike some of the identity theft st- uh, statistics I just gave you, right. where we've actually called around and gotten some of the information. Sure. This is more just based on my experience over the past six years handling these type of cases. Right, right. I do also I also point out that crimes like this do tend to be cyclical.
1: Yes, yeah, and of course now there's more databases and it's transferred more. And I'm just I'm just hoping. And I and what I've learned from a lot of the attorneys who had, who are in-house counsel and who are outside counsel, they the the one great thing about our security breach law that really was you know California's invention was that it has really brought a lot of companies into really focusing on protecting that information better. So it's got to help law enforcement and, well, and everybody else.
0: I, I, it's also going to help the, the companies. Information right. has value and is the heart of any good business. And protecting that information, protecting your customers, is a very important part of that. I will, however, come, come back to the one point that I think we all have to keep in the back of our mind, though, is that there is a little bit of a weakness into, into both of these systems, and that is the issue of our own the consumer's desire to have things quickly and the best example i can give you is instant credit let's say you're you're down at macy's and suddenly there's a big sale on and if you agree to sign up for a credit card not only will you get an additional 10% off but you'll get some benefit or bonus and you'll get credit now we like that we are very much a uh, we, we like the use of instant credit but the information given and the checks there are all areas where, by its nature, the information gets a little weaker, a little more, a little more insecure. We're giving information to first a shopkeeper that then gets put into a computer system and sent over for the evaluation of credit. It's all based on a series of factors that make decisions very quickly. Right. And so again, we are working to try and protect that that data, but we also have to balance security with the. Convenience
1: and ease of use. We're talking with Jonathan Ferretlow, who is a wonderful Deputy District Attorney with the Los Angeles County High Tech Crime Unit. And he's talking to us about some of the cases that he's prosecuted and what we need to know as consumers if we want, you know, to have instant credit and thinking about security and protection. Um, Let me ask you, we were just talking about businesses and and security breaches and choice point. Uh, What are some of the major mistakes that businesses make or let's turn it around positively, what should they be doing?
0: Well, I think that businesses have to look at both ends of the spectrum. It's very easy to be focused on protecting your computer system from the invasion of a hacker. We've all seen war games with Matthew Broderick and uh, I think the most recent Firewall with uh, where someone hacks into a particular system and takes out data and information. And that does happen. But probably the, the greatest vulnerabilities lie in people. It is people who can give you access to the most secure system in the world. Uh, there's a technique used called social engineering, where a good fraudster can talk people out of access information or talk themselves into getting information. Companies need to be focused on who has access to information and uh, what safeguards and checks that they have on it. Sometimes some of the most sensitive information a company has can be accessed by people with little to no stake in the company. So...
1: Right. When I think about that, I think about the pretext calling, you know, a few years ago when the bus boy in New York was able to do pretext calling to transfer money from accounts for Ted Turner, for Paul Allen, Oprah Winfrey. And then most recently, we've heard about the whole HP scandal where uh, private investigators were using pretext calling to get the phone records. Not pretext calling. They actually set up accounts, new uh, online accounts, in the names of journalists and the board members of HP in order to be able to get their phone records. <laughs> so pretext calling and pretext online uh, emails. That's pretty common, and it's it is a it is a form of identity theft.
0: It, it, is a, it is identity theft under California law. Right. If, if you use uh, someone else's personal identifying information in order to get, to get access to credit goods or services or to commit an unlawful act, you've committed an ID theft. Right. But the kind of twist or key to, to think about for companies is that we can't forget the human element. You can have the, the best computer system in, in the world that can be defeated by someone giving over the password.
1: Exactly, like so many of these cases, and I don't know, would you say that this is a lot of the cases that you have, that there are unscrupulous employees who are using their position to be able to help outsiders maybe and co-conspire to steal identities?
0: I think that those sort of uh, cases do exist. We've also seen cases where uh, company representatives help out the identity thief, because again, there's the culture of customer service. You want to try and help the customer. So if the identity thief calls up pretending to be the customer and is persuasive enough, friendly enough, and has enough information, the customer service rep might just help them out.
1: Oh, so, so you that's unintentional <laughs> co-conspiracy you're saying. It's, it's basically they're just being a nice guy and, and they're not following the procedures, or maybe the procedures and policies really are not... Uh, stringent or enough in place. Is that what you're saying?
0: Well, uh, I would phrase it this way. I think that companies have to continuously look at their policies for the dissemination and access to to information because the identity thieves are continually looking at new ways to get information. When a new set of blocks go into place, when a new uh, method for protecting information is started, immediately the flaws are, are looked at by the identity thief world. Right. So the key for, for companies is, number one, make sure that you take care of the people who work for you. Number two, m- make sure that you know where your information is and who has access to it. And again, there is no way to create the perfect system. The best run, best organized company in the world can still be the victim of, unwittingly, of an ID theft because someone can just think of a new way to get information that no one thought of before. And yeah,
1: they're, they're pretty crafty. If they could only use some of this intelligence that they have to instead of outsmarting the system to support the system, it would be great. But um, so in terms of the um, I lost my train of thought, but I was going to ask you about uh, what do you see as as some of the um, the major ways that identity theft occurs in these bigger cases? What are the major ways?
0: Well, uh, in some of the cases that we have had, there ha- there is a, a compromise point to a location that has a large amount of personal identifying information. And then once that compromise point is made, the information is taken out and then used systematically. Those are, are some of the larger cases that we've had.
1: Now, are you talking about electronic information or paper information? It can be both. Okay. Okay. So if... In terms of resolution or, or things that would help you, um, obviously things like encryption would be uh, helpful if they can't unscramble this information to use it. That's one way, right? Yes. But um, what what is what other suggestions do you have for uh, what these companies are doing to avoid this? I mean, if it's paper stuff, what you know are they? Are they have? Do they have paper trails of who has access to certain hard copy documents? What's going on?
0: Well, I would start out with a uh, one thing that's very useful for an investigator is to be is to get familiar with how a company keeps records, because we tend to to, to think of, of records in the in the forms that we are used to, for example, bank records or cell phone records, but. It, Companies in many cases keep other pieces of information for use within the company itself that can be very helpful, like the customer service call log notes or the types of information that might be collected that can be used. So one of the things that I recommend to investigators is when they're dealing with a company that, is, that might be a victim or a source of information, that they get to know how the company keeps records so that they can try and see if there's other evidence that might be there to help us things don't stay in one particular form for each particular type of for any any type of ID theft. I couldn't lay out a 10-step plan for you right. to solve an, any ID theft because fundamentally they change based upon the structure of the company or the goal that the identity is trying to get to. If the information you want is de- designed to tr- trick Bank of America into doing bounds transfers for you, then the crook's approach is going to be different than someone who's trying to get enough information to convince a car dealer to allow them to drive off the lot with a car.
1: Right. You know, we see a lot of check fraud, and it's not new accounts that are open. It's somebody who gets my routing number and my account number and goes and makes up new checks, puts a, a, a name on it that's not my name mm-hmm. and then goes to the bank and because they don't look at those checks at the bank they just you know quickly process them the money is siphoned out of your account um are you seeing a lot of that i mean i'm seeing a lot of it in terms of of victims are are you seeing a lot of that
0: we do have check fraud cases yes absolutely
1: and it, you know what do you suggest for that because that's something that, that's really, uh, you know, if people are going to use checks, the, one I, the thing I suggest is don't use a check. Use a credit card because you're safer. But if you're using a check, there's really nothing you as, a, as an individual consumer can do about it if someone has access to that check.
0: Well, I would also point out, too, though, that uh, there's a large segment of the, of the consumer pop population that's uncomfortable with a lot of the newer forms of electronic commerce. They're not, they're not comfortable doing business on the web or getting their statements online or paying their, their bills by uh, electronic transfer. And they really like the comfort of being able to write the check and get the check back and verify what is done. Mm-hmm. And we also have to think sure. that there are probably millions of checks processed, in, you know, in every week, and very, very few of them are actually picked up. It tends to be a, or a def- defrauded, it tends to be a small percentage of the overall number. But what it really comes down to is an issue of our confidence in something.
1: Yes, yeah. Well, we only have about five minutes left. I I would love for you to um, just go over, tell us a little bit about what's on the L.A. uh, District Attorney's website, because it's fabulous. I I looked at it. And and maybe some words of wisdom, something that you would like to leave us with in the last few minutes.
0: Well, uh, I would certainly recommend that everyone spend a little time going to www.lada.tv which will take you directly to the L.A. County DA website and spend some time wandering around. Not only are there sections that deal with tips on how to deal with identity theft, how to report identity theft, there's one section in particular that's near and dear to my heart. It's called uh, Protecting Our Kids Online, POK. It's a program that's designed to help parents understand what is out there that can harm their child and also how their child can get themselves into trouble online and it gives them a series of step-by-step instructions, explains aspects of computer systems to them, and helps a parent understand what's out there, what the consequences are for their kids, and what a a parent needs to do in order to be able to protect their their child. But in addition to going over the the website, about the best thing that I can recommend for a consumer is this. First, we live in a world where we, we get a lot of convenience, and a lot of capability from various different electronic methods that we're used to using, everything from your ATM card, your debit card, your credit card, to online banking. The key in using these successfully is an application of good old-fashioned common sense. Be very careful about using a debit card with a PIN in an area where someone could read, pick up, or view the PIN card. Be careful of where your credit card goes. If at all possible, pay with your credit card in in your hand. You'll notice many stores no longer ask you to hand the card over to the, the cashier. There's a little box there that you can slide the uh, card it through itself and you can enter in your information. And also, don't forget good old-fashioned cash. Although we're, we're very used to paying with various different electronic methods, cash is the one way to ensure that nothing is going to be used or, or misused about it. But there are great websites out there, great instructional programs all over the web on how to help protect yourself with uh, practical tips and means, everything from how to shred your documents properly to what to do if there's a problem.
1: Well, we want to thank you so much for for all the great work that you do and for those big cases that you take care of to, to protect us. And, you know, one good, wonderful thing about the um, L.A. County District Attorney's Office is you are really the leaders in, in re- prosecuting these cases and creating much more uh, of a... Uh, really uh, advanced approach compared to a lot of the other uh, counties and states across the country so I want to thank you so much Jonathan and I hope you'll come back and we'll have you come back maybe next year and update us as all these new cases that you're doing all right
0: well thank you very much
1: all right and and also they can sign up for your course right at UCLA extension on identity theft
0: absolutely it's a eight-week course that'll go over the uh, laws of ID theft and privacy protection, as well as practical steps on how to protect yourself in different parts of your economic life.
1: Okay, so let them look at it. And thank you again for joining us. You've been listening to Jonathan Ferretlow, who is a deputy district attorney with the Los Angeles County High Tech Crime Unit. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. To find out about our upcoming guests and listen to our previous interviews, subscribe to our podcast or download those podcasts, go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. We hope to see you next week from 5 to 6 p.m. Please join us. And we will uh, thank Lloyd for being a great engineer. Have a wonderful week. See you next Wednesday.